Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. Today's episode, we've got a really interesting discussion with, um, with someone I've known for quite a while now and been really keen to get onto a podcast because she's a real, real expert in, uh, in battery technology, I think. So it gives me a great pleasure to welcome Isabel Sheldon to the podcast. Hi, Isabel. Hi there, Ryan. How are you? Great, thank you. Very good. And, yeah. uh, and how are you doing? Yeah, pretty good considering working from home, but uh, busy as usual, as you, as you know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, interesting times at the moment. So, uh, yeah, this uh, obviously we're recording this um, via the wonders of the internet. So, uh, apologies if uh, it's not quite as good as a face to face, which we had planned uh, or had been talking about. But um, hopefully, we can uh, we can still have a good discussion. So, if if you'd like to just um, start, Isabel, by giving us a bit of background in terms of how you um, got to be doing. Um, what you're doing now and how you got involved in batteries? Well, I sort of fell into it um, back in the early 2000s. I was working for a company in Strasbourg um, as a they were a supplier, tier one supplier into the automotive industry. And having spent some time in the defence electronics industry in the 80s and the 90s, I had some some basic electrochemical knowledge. Um, I wouldn't like to claim I'm a, I'm a specialist, but uh, I do understand the basics. And I just started to put together in my head, um, you know, the fact Toyota released the first generation Toyota Prius, and that was using nickel metal hydride battery technology. Um, I'd come across lithium ion technology, part of a hobby interest I had at the time, and was starting to understand how that operated. So I put two and two together in my head and realized that, uh, you know, even in those early days, electric vehicles were going to be part of our future. And I gave up my very well-paid job based in Strasbourg <laughs> in France and set up my own company. Oh, wow. And initially I did consultancy, um, but then quickly realized that you had the cell manufacturers and you had the vehicle manufacturers, and you didn't have anybody in the space in between at that particular point in time developing the battery systems. So I raised some money um, from some high net worth individuals, um, put in the remainder of my life savings and I set up a company called Amberjack Projects and uh, went out and bought a Toyota Prius and worked with a company called NGCS in California in between as we developed some of the first um, plug-in hybrids uh, powered by lithium-ion battery technology and in fact became the first person in the world to commercially offer them into the marketplace. Um, so that was back in 2003, 2004. Oh, wow. Um, and then developed that technology, developed those designs, um, started peddling it around the automotive industry, and eventually ended up working for companies like Smith Electric Vehicles, um, Lotus, uh, did an Infinity project, the Infinity Emerge um, yep. payload car, yep. um, and then started working in, in the um, public vehicle sector, so buses mainly. And towards the end of the 2000s, we made a big push into 
working with bus manufacturers and developing some really large systems, sort of 150, 200 kilowatt hours, and, and run some prototyping demonstration programs in Europe. The uh, global financial crisis sort of, we, we survived it quite well uh, in <laughs> 2008 and 2009, only to be caught out by the European financial crisis. So as we moved away from passenger cars, which weren't quite ready to move into any kind of significant volume, yeah. it seemed that electric buses was a pretty good bet. And that was one of those markets that was going to move first. Um, but of course, the the European financial crisis meant that revenue dried up um, quite significantly. So unfortunately, we had to close the business. Following on from that, I joined Ricardo as a, a business manager specializing in batteries and was with them for a couple of years. Um, and then I got headhunted to go and work at Johnson Matthew Battery Systems um, as their engineering and technology director, which I did for a number of years and helped you know, the, the staff through the Cummings takeover of that particular, that mm. particular division. And then... Uh, after I'd done that for about 11 months, um, the opportunity to work at UK BIC came up. So uh, I moved across to UK BIC in, in January 2019. So all in wow. all, I've been about 17, 18 years in the battery industry. Um, so probably one of the longer serving yeah. people in this industry and certainly one of the first to build high voltage battery systems back in the early 2000s and actually put them into vehicles and put them on roads. Yeah. And I mean, back then, sort of the uh, world was a bit different. Um, we were... I remember, you know, getting uh, jokes about milk floats and such like all the time. So it wasn't elect the electric vehicle industry wasn't quite as in vogue as it is today. Oh no! I mean, um, people were still just getting their heads around what was a hybrid, and we were coming out with the first plug-in hybrids. Yeah. Um, and most of the people that knew me said, "You're going to do what?" <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. couldn't quite believe I was. I was doing what I was doing. Um, but it turns out, you know, more luck than good judgment. Um, I actually yeah. picked an industry that was that was going to have a future. Oh, oh fantastic. So so now um, you're at the, the UK BIC. Uh, and just for, for people who don't know what that is, um, could you just tell us more about what the BIC does? Yeah, of course. It's, a, it's part of the Faraday Battery Challenge, which is part of the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund that was set up by the government a couple of years ago. Um, so back in 2016, 2017, um, I was invo invited to join some technical working groups in you know, looking at what the future of the automotive industry and spillover industries was going to look like as the um, use of fossil fuels declines in the future. And of course, the UK at that time producing about 1.7 million vehicles a year and producing about two and a half million um, sort of higher end powertrains, 80% um, of which all that was exported. There was going to be quite a significant hit to the UK manufacturing sector as you know, there was a decline in internal combustion engines moving forward. Yeah. So out of those technical working groups, the Faraday Battery Challenge was born, and that's in, in three particular swim lanes. So you have the Faraday Institution, which is looking after a, a applied research. So industry-led but um, academic-executed uh, um applied research in, in battery technology right. and they were given 78 million pounds um, then we come to the next swim lane which is a CR&D um, programs run by Innovate UK so they were given 88 million pounds specifically to spend on battery CR&D and then at the time it was an 80 million pound investment in the scale-up facility so one thing that's always been missing in, 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 the, in the UK is that ability to take pro products and projects from 
you know, the back end of the CR&D and demonstration phase and actually scaled them up into commercialised manufacturing. Um, so that's one thing that the UK has been particularly bad. So the UK Battery Industrialisation Centre is uh, designed to provide that capability in the UK in support of the, the battery industry and hoping to grow that moving forward, as is the whole Faraday battery challenge. Um, so it's quite a unique facility in the world. It's a nominal one gigawatt hour battery scale-up manufacturing facility. Oh, wow. We're not a commercial organisation. We're not here to compete in the marketplace, but we're here to help companies that do want to become active in the marketplace um, to scale up their battery manufacturing capabilities. So that could be a materials development company. It could be um, a cell OEM that wants to put a, a battery cell manufacturing capacity in the UK. Or it could be companies that are looking at module and pack manufacturing as well. So we're really here as a support function to help that industry grow in the UK and benefit UK PLC. Oh, right, cool. And the the centre itself is, um, I mean, what 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 kind of activities are planned? Because it's it's not built yet, is it? That's or not finished, quite finished yet. At the time of not quite finished. We moved yeah. into the offices about four weeks ago. Right. Okay. So if we think about the time scale, um, the first spade in the ground was somewhere around the middle of March. Um, so I think it was 11 months and two weeks to mm. come from a greenfield site, where in fact it was a rugby field with rugby posts and the clubhouse, <laughs> to, to, a, to a battery that's up and we could occupy the offices. I mean, that's that's as quick as the Chinese would put up a facility. Yeah, yeah. And so notwithstanding the... Uh, the, the pandemic crisis at the moment, the timing plan is showing that we should be producing our own reference cells around about July. So we'll pretty much be sat in in the first phase of the finished facility in, in, in July this year. And the scope of activities on site, we can come from you know, the active materials that come into the business. Um, so if somebody wants to come and build some cells whilst they're waiting for their own facility to be put up, they can come into into UK BIC and we can take the active materials, the anodes and the cathode and the binders and the and the uh, thickeners and the additives and, and the solvents and we can mix slurries. We can coat electrodes, both anode and cathode, so we've got one of each. And then we can bring those together, um, slit and calendar, and do cylindrical and pouch cell assembly as the first phase. Wow. So as I said, cylindrical cells, 21700s, we can do from July onwards. We'll be making yeah. our first reference cells. And then 300 by 100 pouch cells um, towards the end of the year from about November, December time. So, so it really, really is a full battery cell um, production facility and, 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 you know, capable of sort of quite significant um capacity as well it's not it's not a kind of lab um i guess does it it must sit somewhere in between being a research lab and a full kind of industrial uh, manufacturing plant well yeah i mean it's not just cells we will have module and pack capability as well um right. so that will be um, up and running from about november time this year um typically we're going to come from trl7 up till about trl9 and MRL 5 up to about MRL 8 or 9. Um, so it's a, it's a full-scale um, manufacturing capability facility. As I said, oh, it's wow. not commercial, so we're not yeah. making commercial cells. Um, but it's, it's, it's there to provide that gap. It's the ton scale. You know, the labs that you talk about are generally working at the kilogram scale. Yeah, yeah. Gigafactories work at kiloton scale, <laughs> and we're going to be at the, the ton scale in between, that missing gap. Wow, that's uh, that's that's really uh, that's fascinating. 
And and is it looking like it's going to be um, sort of uh, really busy as the centre opens? Um, is what's the demand looking like from the from the market? So demand's looking pretty good, actually. Um, you know, with, with these kinds of facilities, you never quite know how they're going to be utilised moving forwards. Um, but we're already starting to have to think about scheduling work coming into the facility and making sure that manufacturing slots are available for companies that want to come and use it. So we've seen quite heavy demand on the, on the module and pack side. Um, and a couple of customers that are already committing to using the facility towards the end of the year. Right. Um, but we're also seeing demand for things like electrode manufacturing. We're starting to talk about cell manufacturing with a couple of companies too. And luckily, we've, we've built a very flexible facility. So if you need to come in and just make electrodes, we can do that. Um, or we can take it all the way through to a, a fully finished cells. Um, or even if you want to bring in your own electrodes and manufacture cells, we can accommodate that too. So giving that kind of flexibility to the facility so that you don't need to pay for the whole lot whilst you're using it, you only pay yeah. for the bit that you need to use, is, is going to be the secret to our success moving forward. I, I guess a key question maybe for some of the people who are listening, because it is a we, we've got a good sort of international um, uh, following for the podcast, is it restricted to just UK companies that can use the facility or... Do you, um, will you work with uh, global partners? So we can work with global partners. There has to be some some UK GDP benefit, some benefit to UK PLC. Yeah. Um, so that could be supporting a technical centre in the UK, even if the manufacturing is done elsewhere. Or even companies that are looking at becoming active in the UK economically, but aren't yet. Uh, we see this as a as a tool to enable them to achieve that uh, and reduce the risk. Um, so a big part of what UK BIC is doing is reducing the risk for companies. We've built the facility at the tonne scale so you don't have to. Um, we'd rather you save your money and build the gig factory further down the road or your battery pack manufacturing facility further down the road. Yeah. We're also here to to provide um, skills training and upskilling. I was just going to ask about that because that's a bit that's a big, with, with any emerging industry, you know, Corporates tend to want people who are experienced in doing what they do, but because people don't, you know, do a lot of uh, battery cell production at the moment, uh, rel- you know, relatively certainly not in Europe, there's a big skill shortage of people who know what to do in that space, isn't there? So, it's, well, there's uh, a huge, there's a huge gap, and you 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 can't go on many courses that teaches you how to do it. Yeah. So a big part of what UK Baking intends to do is uh, as you come into the facility and you start making product, your product using our equipment, we're expecting you to bring your staff in as well. And they can get on 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 the job, hands-on training in, in how to um, you know operate these processes and familiarise them with equipment. Or even if you're thinking about buying equipment and you're not quite sure what you need to buy, Coming into UK BIC and utilising what we've got will help you make more efficient capital decisions moving forwards. Wow. And I, I know um, one, one of the big things that, that there was a lot of speculation about and people were talking about was uh, the possibility of uh, another gigafactory coming to the UK. Because obviously we've got the um, the one up in uh, in Sunderland um, attached to the, the, the former Nissan um, battery uh, manufacturing. But um, is... Do you think it's realistic in in terms of a, a, a another gigafactory coming into the UK? Do you see the, the potential there for a, a UK version of a North Vault or, or something like that? 
So I think there's definitely the demand profile for it. If you look at the modelling as to what the demand for battery systems just for the, you know, for the UK domestic market is concerned, you're talking about over 100 gigawatt hours. And to give you an idea, the Nissan facility is about two gigawatt hours. So, yeah, it's a 50 fold increase in, in requirement by about 2030 to 2035. Um, so if you think about a gigafactory, it can be anything from 15 gigawatt hours to 30 gigawatt hours. You know, we could be talking anywhere between three and five gigafactories required just in the UK. Wow. If you, if you gaze <laughs> across the English Channel yeah. and uh, look at the demand over in Europe, which is 10 times bigger, there's a significant export opportunity for, for the UK as well. So if you build a factory, is it going to be utilised? I think with the undercapacity in the world for cells and battery packs at the moment i think it's a pretty sure bet that you've got a good investment on your hands if you do that oh if only if only that'd be uh, the things that dreams are made of i'd love uh, love to create a uk north vault maybe maybe we'll do that next week eh, as well <laughs> yeah so it's just go and raise some money i think it requires a few billion to do it but you one know or two, i've heard one or two yeah i'll have a look down the back of the sofa uh, so, so I've got, and we, I mean, we get questions all the time on battery, um, battery technology. I would say that the, the incoming questions into the podcast, um, there's, there's a huge number uh, to do with, uh, with, with battery tech, current state of the art, what's coming in the future. So, uh, I'd, I would like to bounce um, a, a few of those off you, if uh, if that's okay. Yes, and, of course. And maybe just um, if we can kind of talk about some of the things that are, are are happening now in terms of the state of the art and and what's coming down the line. So, so one thing recently that we've had a lot of interest in um, is silicon anodes. Um, so that's something I know absolutely nothing about. Um, but people are asking us basically either what are silicon anodes or what is uh, the sort of holdup that's stopping silicon anodes getting into more widespread uh, production. So what do you know about silicon anodes? So interesting question, and um, I will caveat this by saying I'm not an electrochemist, um, but but I do obviously have experience of what this is. Yeah. Um, so silicon anode at the moment using a mixture of natural and synthetic graphite in most of the lithium-ion batteries out there in the marketplace at the moment. And we've heard a lot about the cathode material capacity needing to go up, which is a perfectly valid route of improvement. Um, when you come to the anode, there's not an awful lot you can do with graphite. Um, you can tinker with it, you can put some additives into it, but fundamentally its capacity is fairly limited. So silicon offers an opportunity to significantly increase um, that capacity. Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't like to to give you a doubling or a trebling capacity for the anode um, because it's not my area of speciality, but it's a significant uplifting capacity. And you're already seeing silicon silicon materials coming in in small percentages into lithium-ion batteries that are currently in commercial manufacturing. Right. The big problem with silicon is that all materials expand and contract as you collate and intercalate lithium ion backwards and forwards, the ions backwards and forwards. Yeah. Um, the problem with silicon is it increases 300%, whereas yeah. you know, in a normal material, it's it's sort of, you know, five or 6%. So you end up with a lot of mechanical degradation. The material tends to crack and split and, and, and fall, to, fall to pieces. So the cycle life consequently is, is very, very limited. 
Now, there are a number of organizations around the world that are looking at different systems and different methods to be able to com combat that and be able to accommodate the, swe the swelling without there being this big mechanical degradation within the material. And some of them are making quite significant progress. Um, this makes it quite interesting because it gives a, an opportunity to have a process which could, not definitively, but potentially could, be dropped into the existing lithium-ion manufacturing process, which makes it really, really attractive. But the problem is you need to overcome this problem of the 300% expansion. So mm. are we going to make progress in this area from the results I've seen from various companies? They're making some good progress. Are we there yet to have a very high-loaded silicon anode material? I don't think we're quite there as far as you know, checking it as, as being fit for purpose as far as cycle life and safety is concerned. I think there's some way to go, but it is showing promise. And I think that maybe at some point in the future, it might be might be something we'll see in a commercial cell. Oh, great. Um, is it something that is being worked on actively in the UK? Do you, do you know? Yes, yes. Um, not only is there research going on, but there's a company called Nexion who's very active in, in this in this particular field and have some interesting ideas that could potentially be commercialised. Um, so they're working very hard in, in trying to bring their material to, to visibility and obviously to scale production. Right. OK, fascinating. So um, so hopefully that tidies it up then in terms of why people are looking at, uh, at silicon anodes. The, the next thing that we are asked about all the time is uh, solid state technology. Um, so this is, I think there's um, sort of varying different levels of solid state from what I can establish. Um, but, you know, what's your take on, on what's happening at the moment with solid state battery technology? Well, there's quite a few different approaches um, to, to solid state, you know, especially on the materials front, people using different materials or companies investigating different materials. Um, the problems that you have with solid state are pretty well known. You get voiding, you get dendrite formation, um, because you're, you know, if you're using a lithium metal anode, you're, you're stripping material away and then trying to electroplate it back that, that that's how it's working through a mm. separated material and that separated material is, is a solid electrolyte so the surface chemistry and trying to get that to work is is particularly challenging and i hear a couple of people in the industry quit that the stuff that we can make doesn't work and the stuff that works we can't make <laughs> which is probably oversimplifying it to a certain degree yeah um but there's a significant amount of work that needs to go into making this this happen yeah so obviously capacity is one if you can use lithium metal anode safely then obviously you get very high capacity um reduction in flammability is one of the main drivers um so you're not using a flammable electrolyte using a solid electrolyte that was much more difficult to set on fire um so the improvements in capacity and, and safety could could be dramatic and progress is being made you know i'm seeing some some feedback on on, on developments that are showing pretty good cycle life right. um, but still have some fundamental problems that need to be overcome the big problem with solid state is that it's the scale up in the manufacturing. Um, yeah. It's not going to be a standard reel-to-reel coater winding type assembly process. So whilst the world is scaling up for, for mass lithium ion um, manufacturing for electric vehicles and the hundreds of billions of pounds that's going to be spent globally to be able to achieve that. Yeah come along with a new technology that suddenly means you have to junk half of that equipment and start again you know it's got to be a pretty compelling um, economic case to yeah. to get people to do that 
So I think fundamentally we're stuck with lithium iron for you know, the next seven to 10 years because of the investment that needs to go into ramping up the scale. Yeah. And that really gives the people working on solid state a bit of time to, to get this right. Um, so by the time they are ready to commercialize, you know, hopefully the, the electric vehicle market and all the adjacent markets like off highway and aerospace are going to be willing to, to look at doing something a bit different moving forwards and potentially make different investments. And do, do you think, because there are a couple of companies that are talking about having solid state in the market quite soon, like within the next year or so. Um, basically, my take on that, or what people have told me, is that it's not really proper solid state technology. It's it's kind of uh, sort of uh, somewhere in between a full on solid state battery and a, and a conventional um, lithium. So is that, um, would that kind of follow with your your understanding and thinking of it as well yeah i mean there's there's work that's been going on semi-solids and gel type materials um you know in theory solid state's been around for quite a while um belcor with valence technology way back in the early 2000s and um, they were using like a, a gel material in a matrix captured in a, in a matrix in the polymer material mm. um so, so there's always going to be variations on the theme that could potentially come and provide some advantages. Yeah, I don't think they're going to provide the big step changes in capacity and safety that solid state offers. So, right. I think adoption of those those close closer to market technologies is is probably going to be limited because of the scale that needs to go into, you know, stepping up to the EV challenge that we've all got in front of us. Yeah, and well, that scale is that's an interesting question, and you you actually mentioned it just now, in passing. But you um, you talked about the reel to reel part of the process, and it seems like the the in in terms of the really really high volume manufacturing processes that are needed to make the billions of cells that are going to be needed for for electric vehicles and and like you said, all the adjacent markets, it doesn't seem to me like there's a a decent alternative for that really high volume production to uh, to reel to reel uh, is that are you seeing a, a potential for sort of any alternate production methods or do you, do you think reel to reel is is here to um, here to stay? I think we're going to be stuck with reel to reel for a while. Um, I think there are many improvements that can be made to the manufacturing process. I think fundamentally using reel to reel is going to be the mainstay, um, but adding in you know new deposition technologies, there's there's quite an opportunity to improve the engineering of the electrode. Um, so quite clearly, you know the electrode is the basic part of the cell. As, as an assembled component or a coated component, um, mm. if you can improve its performance through engineering it in a in a more interesting or clever way, um, that's going to have a knock-on effect and improve cell performance. Um, I, I think that, you know, this this technology has been around since the 70s. It was originally invented to create uh, magnetic tape. Remember the compact cassette yeah. and, and videotapes? Yeah. Um, when yeah. Sony were looking at commercializing the first lithium-ion cells, they were like, oh, how on earth are we going to do that? Oh, we've got a bit of equipment in the corner that used to make tapes, so let's have a go with that. Yeah. Um, so, so fundamentally, we're using 1970s technology. Um, although vastly improved um, <laughs> and and uh, much more efficient, but at the moment it remains probably the the most efficient way of of manufacturing the electrodes. And interestingly, you're starting to see um, coated dryer sizes go up. 
So right. the coaters we've got in in UK Bic are 40 meter coast dryers. Um, and if you go around any manufacturing facility in the world, you will see exactly the same equipment uh, being used. However, companies are starting to look at 60 meter coast dryers. So quite clearly, you know, the larger the machine, the higher the throughput that you've yeah. got. So what's, um, just to explain that, um, <laughs> first of all, what's a coated dryer? And secondly, what does the 40 meter or the 60 meter, is that the length of the machine or the length of the product it can handle or the width? Yeah, what, what's, what is, what's a coated dryer? Start with that one. And then we'll get to the next question. So, so a coater is a reel-to-reel machine where you, you unwind a foil, you coat the anode or the cathode, and you, you coil it back up at the other end. Right. And in between those points, um, after you've, you've got your slot die, your, your, your comma die um, coating head, um, you know, there are solvents that are used in the anode and the cathode. So in the cathode at the moment, it's NMP, which is a not the most friendly solvent you can imagine and requires careful handling. Um, yeah. The anode tends to use deionized water. So lithium ion cells need to be dry. You know, water tends to cause big problems as far as the electrolyte is concerned. And obviously you've got lithium in there. Yeah. Um, so you need to have all the solvents and all the water taken out of the coated material before it gets rewound and then slit and used um, to assemble cells. Right. So in between the the coating head and the rewinder, you need to have dryers. Um, so these are big drying ovens, which the material, the coated material on the copper and alloy, copper and aluminium foils passes through, and it evaporates the solvent or the deionized water. The di water is is fairly easy to manage, but the NMP the solvent needs to be recovered yeah. um, because it's uh, it's it's got some health and safety uh, considerations around it yeah so these machines tend to be in industrial capability industrial facilities um about 40 meters long right. so if you're passing the <laughs> anode or the cathode material through a dryer and it's only 40 meters long yeah. it's only so fast you can run it because you're temperature limited you can't go too high in temperature yeah um and increasing the length of that drying phase to 60 meters means that you can actually run the machine faster and still get the material dry at the end, end of the process. Okay, so it's six, the 60 meters is, li- is literally the length of the machine. So that's that's a colossal machine. <laughs> so. It is. I mean, the, the coater bit's actually not too big. Yeah. Um, you know, probably talking about about sort of seven to ten meters long, maybe a bit longer, and the rest of it is all the drying drying zone. And um, on that, um, one of the technologies that's uh, p- potentially been talked about recently, and I think a Tesla experimenting with dry coating. Have you seen much of that? So I've seen the reports and obviously seen the companies they, they've bought to, to acquire that technology. And dry coating does represent a, um, a lowering in cost, a significant lowering in cost, because quite clearly, if you don't need to run a dryer, yeah. um, you can produce it an awful lot quicker. So an interesting development. Um, I'd like to see you know, evidence of that being used in, in production. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's not at the moment, but I'm sure you know, it's all knowing how Elon Musk works and how bright and smart that guy is he will find a way to to commercialize it yeah um so i think what the benefit is going to be and how much that's going to impact in cost um you you can see the predictions but the reality of that would be interesting to find out yeah yeah it's it's uh super interesting because there's sort of there's two elements isn't there really to the cost 
of of um, batteries for EVs or for for anything. What one you at the raw material element of the cost, which is obviously significant, but then the the kind of processing cost and that turning it from you know raw uh, chemicals into a finished battery cell. And there's there's quite a lot of processing steps along that way, isn't there? So. Um, the opportunities on the material side are, 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 you know, getting more better active, better use of the active materials in the battery. And then on the um, the processing side, being able to te- take out or optimize or um, reduce the, the processing time or the energy input cost into the manufacturing, because there's, there's also quite a lot of energy required. So um, it's interesting to see people kind of working across all, all of it, really, to... Um, looking for incremental improvements and also these big um, these big potential step uh, step changes but the 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 real to real process is oh it's fascinating for some reason it reminds me of being um, in like a newspaper um, plant you know just seeing all these sort of huge amounts of sheet material flying all over the place and um, being handled it's quite a, an amazing thing to see um, working in, and in operation. Um, yeah, sorry. Well, in, well incidentally, actually, um, when you start talking about the staff that you require to to manufacture all the way through through that manufacturing chain, there are yeah. allied industries where there are relevant skills. So yeah. um, printing in newspaper presses actually does have a very similar skill set to coating oh, really? electrodes. Um, so, so you, you can find coating experts in a number of different industries that could be could be brought in into battery manufacturing. Actually, you raise a very interesting point about you know the the cost stack up. Um, if you look at where the materials dug out of the ground and then where it's delivered as the finished material, there's a tremendous number of processes that sit in between those two points. Yeah. And cutting down the carbon footprint of the supply chain is going to be a really important part of what we do moving forwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, so currently you have materials that you know, end up going around the world a couple of times um, before they actually get assembled into a product that can be utilised. And, and trying to cut down on that is, is a really important part of what we're trying to do moving forwards. Yeah. And interestingly, the UK is actually in a fairly good position. So although... On the nickel, we don't actually mine the nickel. We do have the second largest um, nickel refinery in the whole of Europe, based in South Wales and Clydeck. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and they already produce um, refined nickel that can be used in, in battery technology. Um, there are a couple of intermediate processes that, that it needs to go through before it can be used, but the basic material, the refined material, is produced in the UK. On a similar scale, um, on the anode, about 20 or 30 percent of the anode of, of a lot of batteries that are used in the world um, is made from synthetic graphite. Uh, the synthetic graphite comes from needle coke mm. and the best quality needle coke in the world comes from North Sea oil. And about 30 percent of that market is supplied by a company called Philips 66 based in Lincolnshire. So two of the significant elements in the battery supply chain are already here in the UK. Um, So if we can get the intermediate processing done here in the UK, then we can start to to reduce the carbon footprint of those materials. And because we've got a very green grid and it's getting greener, we have a good opportunity to to deliver on that promise. Of course, you mentioned that it's very energy intensive and energy here is much more expensive than it is in China. Yeah. So we've probably got to be a bit more clever with the processing to reduce the energy and the value add. 
um, or work a way of, you know, actually reducing the energy costs so that it becomes economically attractive to do it here in the UK. But we've yeah. got a good starting point. We've got a good starting point. That's complex, isn't it? Because the, the energy cost in China arguably is not really a true cost because it's a, it's quite a, a heavily state-controlled market. So I don't see it going that way in the UK anytime soon. But um, yeah, the, the, the opportunities for renewables to to sort of drive your um, battery process are, are great. I, I had a fascinating discussion the other day with um, a guy um, uh, called uh, Gerard Barron, who's he runs a company that are doing, um, they're basically recovering um, battery metals from the ocean floor. Uh, so it's kind of, I'm, I'm loath to call it underwater mining because they're not really mining. Um, they've got a, a, a source of uh, the, the materials that are required for batteries that are just sort of, sitting around in, in what he described as uh, like small potatoes on the um, on the deep in the deep ocean floor apparently they're accessible and, and incredibly pure so the the carbon cost of getting from these uh, nodules into materials that can be used in in battery production uh, was I can't remember exactly what he said the number but it was it was huge it was like 70 percent less than conventionally mined materials that um, and it, it had a huge impact on the co2 um of the the finished battery uh, so it's really you know might not might not turn into to anything but uh, he, he was super really clever guy very passionate about what he was doing and it was it was interesting just hearing of a completely different source for those really important raw materials yeah i think it's interesting because you know if i teleport myself back to the early 2000s when I stood there with my hands on the hips going this is going to be big in the future but nobody would listen <laughs> um, and then sort of fast forwarding to today where everybody's listening to it and everybody's piling into it yeah. and the more brains that think about this and the more people that start investigating the more possibilities there are moving forwards and some you know some great innovations to to come to not only the battery tech itself but also how do we fill up this supply chain? How do we localize it in the UK to make sure we can feed the factories? Um, it's amazing. So yeah, I mean, in, I think it's great. Like 10, 10, 15 years, it's gone from the challenge being uh, the crazy people like me and you going, uh, this is going to be a big thing. And everyone else going, no, 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 it'll never take off to now the challenge is everyone going, well, there's going to be so much demand that it'll be impossible to meet the demand with what we've got from uh, materials and you know how many mines are we going to need to have to satisfy all this? It's sort of the 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 challenges. I guess p- people will always find problems, but the challenges have flipped on their heads in uh, in quite a short um, quite a short space of time. <laughs> um, yeah, and also the misconceptions over materials as well. You know, uh, there's lots of um, nickel. There's lots of carbon in the world. Mm. Um, quite clearly, we've got too much carbon. Um, lithium isn't quite the problem that everybody keeps reporting it to be you know, no. there's plenty of it it's just thinking of different ways to get access to it and obviously owning the right to, to the resources is going to be a significant part moving forwards the big problem is cobalt yeah. you know, and, and, and trying to reduce that cobalt content um, and really if you, if you go and listen to the experts in that field um, that there is an impact to reducing um, cobalt because you know even if it's not done in the right conditions there are people whose livelihoods depend on mining that material yeah 
and those people will struggle even more when we stop buying it. Um, so I've got to think about support for those communities and those countries that are that are going to lose revenue in the future and, and their populations are going to suffer as a result. Um, you know, not saying that the mining conditions are acceptable by any stretch of the imagination, but there is that to consider. Um, and cobalt is one of those materials that, you know, we're going to struggle to get rid of it completely. Um, we may get down to acceptable levels in, in, in batteries, but it's there for stability. Um, it, it's something if we if we take it out completely, we end up with stability problems within the cells. Right. Um, so it's a conundrum that needs to be needs to be thought about and fixed. But there's also the human impact um, for, you know, further upstream in the supply chain that needs to be th- carefully thought out in conjunction with that. And and what is um, so when because that neat, neatly segued in my uh, next question was about reduction in cobalt content. What is it that um, that people are doing to get such significant reductions in in cobalt? Because we've gone from what kind of ten percent to two percent uh, or, or less in in quite a short space of time. So what's um, kind of enabled that transition? Well, we went from 30% to 20% to 10%. And the the next generation will probably be half of that will be about 5%. Yeah. Um, so it's looking at clever um, additive systems to go into, into cells to try and improve the stability that don't use cobalt. Um, you know, it's all about that stability and making sure that that material is safe and can cycle well. Um so it's really a question for the electrochemist, not a question for me. <laughs> um, but I know a tremendous amount of effort is going on in that that particular field, and I think the you know the holy grail of having a cobalt-free battery is what everybody's working towards. Um, but I think there's a realization that that's going to be quite difficult to deliver on. Um, yeah. So as the global demand for batteries increases. Um, there is a benefit because the percentage increase in cobalt, hopefully in the future, will, will be less steep. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing will rely less on cobalt than it has done in, in years gone by. Yeah, As it's it's really interesting to see. I guess, I mean, one, one of the challenges, I think, um, and you're right in the middle of this, so you must... Um, you must see this is that there's so much work going on in so many different areas there's, there's a lot of moving parts at the moment to the battery scene and just kind of keeping a handle on everything that's going on and, and making sure that the, the you know that you're not working on something that's going to be obsoleted by someone else's innovation must be quite difficult at the moment do you, do you see that as being a, a problem in the in the space yeah, I mean, while, whilst the um, opportunity to have game-changing improvements in in energy density a little way off yet, it's probably less less of an impact as as far as I can see. You know, the day the person turns up and says, "I've just overnight doubled energy density," is when you know people are going to start looking at the investments they've made and and and, and start to be concerned about that. But right. I don't see that happening in the next. In the next five to six years, to be honest, I think solid state is towards the back end of this decade as a proper commercial widespread product. Right. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of work going on left, right and center all around the world. And keeping tabs on all of it is not an impossible. Um, you know, I'm fairly well placed to have visibility of a lot of the major developments. But occasionally, you know, people come and go, have you seen this? And I go, wow, no, I haven't seen that. <laughs> 
Um, so I, I don't think anybody can can keep abreast of everything that's going on. Yeah. Um, all we can do as a as a global community, because this is a global push, you know, we need to keep collaborating and keep cooperating to make sure that we can all achieve this goal of. Yeah, reducing our, our dependence on fossil fuels and improving local air quality. I think it's such an important thing yeah. um, for, for the world to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree 100, 100 million percent. Um, I, so the elephant in the room then is um, often with, with lithium batteries, uh, you know, people get onto the safety um, angle, you know, so some of the sort of things that you see in terms of uh, the potential uh, for for fire risk and um, that 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 sort of area, what do you kind of what what's your take in terms of what's happened with um, battery safety and and what are the kind of main opportunities in in terms of uh, improving that further? So there are a number of companies around the world that have got very very good safety records um, mm. as far as themselves are concerned i think um, aesc would be an example of that um, you know their number of incidents global incidents is actually incredibly low lower than you would normally expect yeah um, there are other manufacturers around the world that have scaled up really very quickly and have a much poorer safety record um, so i think there's a lesson that can be taken from that um, yes we're in a race we've got to do things really quickly um, but that's absolutely no reason to, you know, push caution to one side when you're developing and designing these systems. Yeah, I think that you know, companies and, and individuals that have a good track record of doing these this, this kind of development really safely and having product out there in the marketplace that's, that's provide provided good service, um, I think those people are going to be in demand because that's that's what we've got to focus on moving forwards. Um, so cell safety is one thing that I think is really, really important. And, you know, the drive to reduce costs cannot be at the compromise of safety. Yeah. Um, the, the next level up is, is the system level. Um, so, yes, lithium-ion cells, there is a risk. I think we all understand that. Um, but engineering that out at, at a pack level and putting the mitigations into the pack to make sure that if there was a catastrophic event with the cell, it's contained and it doesn't spread and it doesn't propagate throughout the entire pack. So I think we've, we've made some significant progress over the last four or five years um, in, in that particular area. Um, is there more progress we can make? Absolutely. I think aerospace is one area where some of those innovations are going to come from. You know, mm. if, you're, if you have a problem with the electric vehicle and you're driving down the road, you can pull over at the side of the road and get out. You can't mm. do that at 30,000 feet. <laughs> no, not <laughs> easily. <laughs> not without messing your hair up anyway. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and so I guess from that, a lot of the safety angle comes from basically good manufacturing um, process control as, as much as it does from the, the kind of... Um, chemistry and uh, and actual materials technology in the in the product well, i think it's chemistry it's good design good design practices um you know i've, I've suffered from making those mistakes in the early 2000s myself so i learned the hard way before you could go online and google it mm. um so design is a really really critical part of that but also consistency in manufacturing so you know, you, you want to make your, your your product consistently at the same quality, but you also want to make sure that you can do it at the right yield with the you know reduced scrappage to make it economically viable. So, 
really in the battery industry, it's a multi-pronged thing. And you yeah. need to have people that have got specialist knowledge in, in each of those areas to be able to make this a viable, economic and, and uh, useful product going out into the marketplace. Yeah. Okay. Um, so last, last question then. Um, do you see there being any alternatives, viable alternatives to lithium on the, on the horizon um, coming for, for the automotive market? $64,000 question. I wish I could answer that. Um, <laughs> okay. So I, I think on the horizon, not at the moment. Um, there are alternative chemistries. Um, so sodium ion shows some promise in certain markets. Mm. Um, you know, it has the opportunity uh, or the perceived opportunity to lower cost. Yeah. Um, but that does sacri- sacrifice energy density. Um, there are high power versions of, of that technology that, that could be quite interesting in things like mild hybrids yeah. or grid scale energy storage, those kinds of markets. But I think for the majority of the bell curve in the automotive industry, lithium ion is, is, is going to be where it's at for the next five to seven years. Right. And if you think about the further, um, um, you know, the future um um, technologies that could come along to replace that they're still using lithium you know lithium metal anode it's the lightest it's the lightest metal in the book yeah um it's got a lot of advantages um you know even if you went to star trek technology they were talking about dilithium crystals so <laughs> yeah, even a couple of hundred years from now that may be what we're still using um yeah. but you know i'd love for somebody to come up with with a with a material that's different can be made more cheaply can be made more safely and and, and more sustainably um, but I think we've got to wait for those developments, and I, I don't think they're going to be coming in the next five to seven years at least. And actually, I, I said that was the last question, but I've just I've got one more for you. Sorry. <laughs> so thinking Sorry. about the the lithium chemistry, then um, most kind of um, OEMs have gone down the NMC route. Other than in um, in China, there seems to be a lot of people, or almost a, like a resurgence of uh, LFP type technology what what do you see you know do you think there's a reason for that is is the sort of use case particularly different or has has that technology improved significantly so the technology has improved lfp technology has made progress and the energy density has improved is it anywhere near nmc no of course it's not Mm. um you're probably talking about in between sort of 60 and 70 percent of the capacity of nmc um I think it's really interesting because I spent most of my early lithium ion career before NMC and NCA came along, cobalt oxide was the only alternative. Yeah. Um, promoting LFP as a, a safe alternative, long cycle life, yeah. good safety, lower cost. Good old sun disguise, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's material I know know pretty well. Um, I think the resurgence is really interesting because there's been a big focus on you know trying to get to that 400 mile EV range. Yeah. Um, majority of people drive 30 or 40 miles a day. Mm. Um, I think again, Elon Musk has been extremely smart because he's realised that. You know the number of cars that actually use their full range every day are actually quite small. Yeah. Um. So to reduce the the cost of entry, um, you know, for car buyers to go and buy an EV to go LFP and provide a slightly more limited range but much lower cost vehicle at the same quality levels, you know, yeah. for, for the rest of the vehicle, I think it's a really smart move. And I think a number of a number of manufacturers could probably take a leaf out of that book and go actually, you know, LFP. Yeah. 
is, is offering some advantages here. And of course, because that's a it's it's not a conversion. Um, you know, it, the, the the car that that's going into is a ground up EV design. They've got the space. They've got plenty of space to to sling a a relatively large battery um, underneath, rather than the trying to kind of shoehorn it in. Um, in, in in the best of with the best of intentions, an awful lot of the other EVs are kind of sharing uh, platforms with internal combustion engines that weren't necessarily natively designed to be an EV. So it's it's difficult. Yeah, but... no, I think I think the flex platform has got a limited life. Yeah. And when people start driving EVs, I mean, I've been driving EVs for 17 years, mm. um, you know, from prototypes through to production vehicles. And yeah. you know, even being handed prototypes when I've got to companies in China who said, oh, Isabel, can you review our car for us, please? And you know, <laughs> sort of handed me the clipboard to do the uh, the drive, drive analysis. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, if you, if you can get to a point that Tesla's got to where the dynamics of the vehicle and the efficiency of the vehicle has been so well engineered, you know, you can start looking at maybe some of the cheaper, lower performing alternatives and still have a really, really good vehicle for the road. Um, you know, you look at some of the work that they've done on heating, ventilation, air conditioning and drive system, power electronics, um, e-machines yeah. and how they've started to integrate these in single units to reduce the production costs as well as improve the efficiency you know suddenly having the latest thing in energy density becomes not not number two but probably less less critical for certain yeah. types of vehicle applications yeah especially uh congested uh, asian uh roads in, in particular uh, or London, you know, yeah. give me a Range Rover powered by an LFP battery. I'm probably happy for every single day. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. It congested cities full stop. That was, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Fascinating. Well, Isabel, that the time has absolutely uh, flown by. We're, we're over the 45 minutes, but um, I think that's, that's definitely been worth it. So thank you. Um, thank you very, very much for taking the time out to, uh, to, talk, to talk to us today. You're very welcome, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on the show. That's all we've got time for today. Um, I found that really useful. So uh, I hope other people got some value out of that as well. If you've got any questions um, that you would like answering, um, so there's about a three-month backlog of questions just been answered there in that one podcast episode. But if you've got any questions that you'd like answering, um, do get in touch and let us know. I'll put some links in the show notes so you can find out more about the UK BIC and more about Isabel. Um and uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channel, to give us a review or hit like. Um, we'll be putting more podcasts out over the uh, over the coming weeks and months. Uh, so we've got some really good episodes coming up, and uh, we'll hope you uh, hope you get lots of value out of those too. So, like I said, that's all we've got time for today. Um, I really look forward to speaking to you again soon.